Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We uh, obviously finished our study through Revelation, which I think was incredible. We went out with a bang last week, I'd say. Which means today we start our five-week sermon series through the Psalms. It's something that we've been doing every summer now for a couple of years. And I I love this spiritual practice that we have as a church. I think the Psalms often, we treat them as like this sugar that we sprinkle on to like the rest of our Bible study reading. But in reality, the Psalms are meant to be this nourishing meal in and of themselves. Uh, As I was kind of preparing for it, I, I realized a commentator pointed out that the Psalms were Jesus's songbook, which is kind of like saying if Jesus had a Spotify playlist, he would have 150 songs in there, and it would be the Psalms. He uh, would break out singing the Psalms like he did in Passover. There's no other book in the Bible that Jesus quotes more than he quotes the Psalms. So you could say, and for that matter, Jesus led the rest of the church to do the same thing. They study and knew the Psalms very, very well in the same way that like TV and music and film shape our language. The Psalms shaped the language of God's people. In other words, when we, when we read through the Psalms, I want to encourage you guys as you do it as your own personal time, like recognize that this is not just information download for us. The Psalms should be done. Uh, Timothy Keller says it like this. The Psalms lead us to do what the psalmists do, to commit ourselves to God through pledges and promises, to depend on God through petition and expressions of acceptance, to seek comfort in God through lament and complaint, to find mercy from God through confession and repentance, to gain new wisdom and perspective from God through meditation, remembrance, and reflection, the Psalms ultimately should affect our imaginations and transform the way that we pray and the way that we interact and understand who God is, what's going around around us, and even our own hearts. Eugene Peterson put it like this in regards to applying Psalms to our prayers. He said, left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything that he speaks to us. What is essential in prayer is that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn, not not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. And so today we take our, our first sort of nourishing bite out of the Psalms by reading through and studying Psalm 126. And this Psalm struck me in my personal prayer life. The first three verses are all about praising God during the good times. 
And the last three verses are all about trusting God during the darkest of times. And I'm gonna tell you guys, it was verse five that when I read, um, it, it, it stopped me in my tracks. And I spent time wrestling with it, better trying to understand it. Here's what verse five is. It's a little peek to what we're getting into. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. When I read that, I thought to myself, like, I know that to be true, but how and why? Why is it true that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy? So the title of our sermon today is How to Walk Through Pain and Suffering. The first three verses go like this. Actually, let me pray before we get there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how raw and honest it is. We thank you that it speaks true to every season and emotion and question that we may have about God, you, or the world around us. I pray, Lord, as we spend time in these six verses, that they would bring us clarity and hope, that they would strengthen our faith, that in the hurricanes of life, we would cling to you as a safe harbor. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here's the first three verses. When the Lord restores restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. The first thing that I noticed while studying this is um, God's people, especially during the time when this psalm was written, they knew suffering. They knew and un understood suffering in a way that like is just utterly different. See, it's almost like our modern lives are built for comfort. It's built to protect us from the idea of, of, of death and suffering. Just take like eating food as a primary example. Last year, we got to go fishing with Uncle Brian for the first time and Levi caught a fish and it came to like Brian's rule was that if you catch a fish, you got to like either, is it called gutting it? I don't know. Yeah. Kiss it or clean it. Yeah, you got to clean it, kiss it, clean it, do all those things. I clearly don't fish. Orange County kid, I have no idea what, like, I don't even know why he would want to do that. But anyway, so his rule was that if you catch a fish, you got to clean it if you're gonna eat it. And uh, when it came time to cleaning it, Levi got like a little scared. He realized that he was about to take the life of another animal and see its insides. Here's the thing that's weird about that though. And, and to Brian's credit, he got Levi through that and Levi did it and uh, it worked out really well for him. He's gonna be a fisherman or a serial killer. <laughs> Only time will tell, so thanks Uncle Brian. Here's the thing about that though, is that, that we, we, are, like, we aren't used to the process of death, right? 
Like we go to the store and the meat is prepackaged for us and the only person that ever really needs to see raw meat or blood is the one that's cooking it. Everything else is already done. But for most of human history, recognize that we were familiar with death. If you were gonna eat meat, it was because you raised it and you were gonna slaughter it or you hunted it and you were gonna slaughter it. You knew death well. Your hands were dirty with the blood of the things that you ate. It was a totally normal thing. But today in our day and age, we keep death at bay from us. And I think in some ways it's a good thing. As I was like looking through what these people had to go through, I was just like, no, thank you. Like I came to realize that when a loved one passed away, you know, for us, they're carted off and someone else needs to take care of that. But for most of human history, for God's people in Psalms, in the Psalms, they had to take care of the body of their loved ones. They had to dig the grave. That was all on them. Like these people knew suffering in ways that I just don't want to know. I mean, as an example, I was shocked to realize that these poor human beings, like a quarter, okay, we'll put it this way. The average family gave birth to between four and eight kids. And a quarter of infants passed away before their first year. Half of all children passed away before they even hit puberty. So do the math, like the amount of times that, that parents had to how to go through that process was insane. Here's why I'm bringing this up is because as they went through the suffering that they experienced, they turned to the Psalms. They turned to the Psalms to understand what was happening, to trust God in those dark times. And what they learned and what they found in the Psalms is available to us. And I hope that we will find a comfort, a sense of comfort, or maybe even at least a sense of hope as we read through Psalm 126. So the question ultimately is like, how did these experts walk through so much pain and suffering and yet hold fast to hope? And the first answer to that is that they knew how to praise God in the good days as a spiritual practice for the bad days. You know, we often take for granted the everyday regular moments of life as though the good life, as though comfortable life is something that we just are entitled to, as though it's not an act of grace. In church as a family, like we've had some really good days. I don't know if you guys remember, but like four or five years ago when we were still meeting at the school, it was like every single Sunday we were finding out somebody was getting pregnant. I was like questioning what Danny was putting in the communion cups. I used to tell Chris his preaching was like this aphrodisiac. You guys all got riled up and went home. <laughs> That's what I get to say when Chris is in here. Maybe some of you guys are in a good season now where new relationships are forming where old ones are deepening, where you're full of health and happiness and praise God, those are times of grace that we should not take for granted. We should not be bored by the glorious grace of the mundane life. One of my favorite songs every time I hear it is by a band named Gang of Youths. 
And in this song, the singer is like the single guy, maybe he's a musician, whatever, and he has this reoccurring dream. And in the reoccurring dream, he, he's married with a kid and he's shocked about how happy he is in this dream because it's a life that he didn't know he wanted. Here's how it starts. He says about this life, it's boring, but in the most exquisite of ways, no carcinogenic and humdrum malaise. And it's strange, all the things that I've run from are the things that completeness could come from. And then he goes on, so anyways, we're happy and impossibly so. It's earth and heaven, all simpatico, floorboards laid out and the walls painted white. My dream self and I like the same thing. And in this dream, in this song, the, the wife and the child end up dying in a car accident. And he wakes up and you get a sense that he's like now telling his friend, warning his friend about his life because his friend's married and with a kid. And this is what he says to his friend. Do not let this thing you got go to waste. Do not let your heart be dismayed. It's here by some random disclosure of grace from some vascular great thing. Let your life grow strong and sweet to the taste because the odds are completely insane. Do not let your spirit wane. Do not let your spirit wane. Look at what verse one said again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Family, don't take for granted the graces of God. They aren't some boring standard for your lives. We're not entitled to experience those good and beautiful days. Every disagreement that you have with your spouse, every time you wake up to their bad breath, those are moments of grace. Every time your parents get under your skin, every time your baby wakes you up at two o'clock in the morning, those are moments of grace. And when you praise him in those good times, it prepares you to cling to him during the darker days. It's like a warm-up drill. I'm, uh, I've, I do this personal training stuff, and one of the things I'm doing is trying to jump higher, which you're like, you're 38 and you're 5'8", dude. You're not going to dunk anytime soon. <laughs> First off, I'm 5'9", with shoes on, uh, and I'm just trying to clear my toes at this point. But here's the thing, every Friday, Matt, you're laughing way too hard, bro. <laughs> I play basketball with Matt, so he knows how little I can actually jump. Uh, here's what you do, every Friday, they, you're, you're supposed to kind of measure how, how tall, how high you can jump, right? But before you do that, you have to do all this heavy lifting on your legs, and then you have to do these isometric jumps, and then you gotta do these explosive workouts. And then, once you're exhausted, you tie weights to your ankles, and only then are you measuring if you can jump any higher. And of course, you might think to yourself, like, you're going to jump your least best after all of that working out and with those weights tied to you. But the reason why they do all of this is because you're, they say, allegedly, I'm training my body so that uh, my muscle memory and my nervous system is learning how to become more explosive. Supposedly, when I take all that off and I'm running around with my kids or I'm trying to keep up with Matt on the basketball court, it should help me. Because the point is that when we practice praise in our everyday lives, especially in our good days, it's like training our souls to withstand the dark days. We are creating a, 
spirit type of muscle memory that fortifies us. We are to praise God in our seasons of fortune, which will help us trust God in our seasons of suffering, which leads us to our second point, to trust God in our suffering. Look at verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. This chapter gives us two different types of suffering. The first is the suffering that is followed by restoration. And the second is a long type of suffering, a suffering that has no end, perhaps, it seems. It's important to realize what it means by the Negib. So this Negib was this desert valley that most of the year was dry and it had these dried out streams in them. But once a year, the rains would come and the whole valley would come alive. The hills would go green and yellow. The rivers would become alive. You can go fishing in them. Honestly, as I was reading it, I was thinking like, this is Saddleback Valley. Because for most of the year, it's dry and barren. But like right around March, April, you know, it becomes really green. The hills are all green and yellow and you can take your kids down and find frogs and things like that. Sometimes seasons of death are followed by life. And that doesn't take anything away from those moments of drought. You know, you think about Job. I didn't realize this, but Job is 42 chapters long. And for 41 of those chapters, Job is suffering. 41 chapters, actually not until the last seven verses that any kind of reprieve comes to Job. When we first meet him, he's wealthy, respected businessman. He's got a big family. God says, he brags on him. He's like, Job is blameless and an upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And then of course, as we know, Satan goes to God and he tells him that the only reason why Job is even worshiping you is because he has a good life. And it's interesting that Satan asks God for permission to cause suffering in Job's life. And God grants him position with parameters. I mean, just pause for one second here and point out that most of the narratives that we hear about good and evil make it sound like there's some cosmic battle between God and Satan. It makes it sound like Satan is like this guerrilla warfare kind of guy that's run around causing a muck in God's kingdom. But when we read the scriptures, especially Job, what we see is that, is that Satan is no more than a dog on a leash. He is subject to God's sovereignty just as much as the rest of God's creation. He's begging God to do something in Job's life. He's a dog on a leash. God grants Satan this opportunity. And in one day, Job loses everything. His house, his money, his opportunity to make any more money, and his 10 children. And at the end of this day, we see Job there with his clothes ripped. He has shaved his head, and yet he's still praising God. And so then Satan goes to work again, and now Job breaks out in sores. And the next picture we see is Job sitting there with sores all over his body, broken pottery, and he's scraping the ooze off of him. And his wife walks in and she says, do you still hold fast to integrity? Curse God and die. And she leaves him, which you got to think Job was like, you took everything else from me. You couldn't take her. <laughs> you guys would never say that. 
Like I said, it's not until the last seven verses of the entire book that Job's suffering lets up. And it says, the Lord gave him twice as much as what he had before. Here's what it says. And the Lord blesses the later days of, Job's, of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys, which is just like the Bible's way of saying is he, he was loaded. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. You know, as some of you guys know, uh, I grew up with a mom who struggled with drug and alcohol addiction my entire life, most of my life. And in my early to mid-20s, it, it finally dawned on her that she was an addict and she wanted to go into rehab. And by the grace of God, I was young, didn't have any student debt, and so I was able to help with that. And as she got out of rehab, she had my triplet sisters who were in elementary school at the time. And they had nowhere to live. And again, by the grace of God, I, I was able to get an apartment and move my mom and sisters in with me. And... A few months after that, my mom relapsed, and I confronted her about it. And something that you need to know about getting in the way of an addict and their drugs is that it's like cornering a wild animal. They think the drugs is what they need to survive, and they will tear you apart to get to them. And I learned that firsthand. It was one of the roughest days of my life. My mom uh, totally addicted to her drugs, and it was really her drug speaking, uh, cursed me and said things to me that I'll never repeat and that I wouldn't say to my worst enemy. And that night, I remember going to bed utterly devastated, like not knowing what to do. I mean, my mom was an addict again, you know? And in my mind, like it was only a matter of days until she would die. I didn't know where my sisters would go. And I remember that night laying in bed and just crying, sobbing like I had never cried before in my entire life. The thing I prayed to God and fell asleep praying through tears was, I can't do this. You've got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong guy. I just said that over and over and over again until I fell asleep. Those are sincere prayers that God hears. After all, what is the first of the Beatitudes? Blessed is the poor in spirit. And those moments when you have nothing left and the weight of all of the pain presses on your chest so that you can't breathe and you cry out to God, that is when he is nearest to you. Blessed is the poor in spirit. After all, it's Jesus that prayed the same kind of prayer, didn't he? I mean, think about it. Jesus, the God-man, 
with blood sweat coming off of his body, lifted his voice up to his father in heaven and said, God, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And you know what the next verse says? Then an angel came and strengthened him. Suffering will take you to the very edge of life. And just when we can bear no more and breathe no more, that is when God answers our prayers because Jesus' Father in heaven who heard him is the same Father who hears you. And by the grace of God, as you guys know, my mom is today sober. More than that, she is saved, and she's a grandma to my three kids, which is a beautiful thing. But as I said before, not all suffering ends that way. Some suffering is long-suffering, and here's where we get in verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. You know, the reality of so much of the Bible is that this is the way life is for God's people. There's like this narrative that if you follow Jesus, you're gonna have a good life. Like sure, maybe some bad things will happen to you, but for the most part, you're gonna have a really good life if you just commit it to Jesus. But here's the thing, the promise of the gospel is not that you get a good life. The promise of the gospel is that you get Jesus and he will be enough to get you through life. Let me say that again. The promise of the gospel is not that you get a good life. The promise of the gospel is that you get Jesus and he will be enough to get you through life. This is John the Baptist's story. Like, this blows me away. John the Baptist has gotta be one of like Jesus' most ardent followers. I mean, the dude was in, he's Jesus' cousin and at a baby shower or some sort of event, like the mom and his mom were hanging out together And John the Baptist starts worshiping Jesus while they're in the womb together, which is weird, but also kind of cool. He gets older and he starts his ministry before Jesus even reveals himself to the rest of the world as the Messiah. He has the honor of baptizing Jesus himself. So you would think like nobody trusted Christ more than John the Baptist, right? But at the end of his life, he's in prison He's about to be beheaded and his faith begins to waver, thin out a little bit. And so he sends a message to Jesus and he says, are you the one who has to come, who was to come or should we look for someone else? He was like, man, I'm about to get beheaded here. Are you the Messiah? In Jesus' response, he, he quotes Isaiah 35, but he stops short. Here's what he says. In Luke 7, he says this, Jesus' response to John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Here's why this is crazy. And this is where the Bible gets so gritty and is like not a children's story. 
Jesus is quoting Isaiah 35. And just after that in Isaiah 35, it goes on to say that the prisoners will be set free. But he doesn't quote that part. He doesn't quote the part that John probably wanted to hear. In other words, Jesus tells his cousin, yes, I am the Messiah, but you're going to die. And this brings John hope. Even though his faith had thinned out and his suffering ultimately was going to bring him to his death, it fortified his faith and his hope in his Savior. And later on, John, uh, Jesus says that John is one of the greatest to be born of women. Long suffering will do one of two things to your faith. It'll erode your faith until there's nothing left, or it'll reveal and refine it. And the thing about it eroding your faith is that it's like a double suffering because not only are you lamenting the sorrow that you face, but you also lose any sense of hope. But when it reveals and refines what you believe in, it brings you hope to face, even in John's case, a beheading. What we ultimately realize is that Suffering and hope coexist together. Hope doesn't get rid of suffering. Rather, they are a, an accompaniment to one another. I learned this, as some of you guys know, when my sister Jay passed away. Uh, you know, my, one, for those of you who don't know my sisters, like I, I absolutely loved and adored my baby sisters. I was 13 years old and only child uh, begging for siblings and my sisters were born. And like, you know, older siblings get mad because the younger ones get all the attention. I had triplet sisters. So like, I never got anybody's attention. My mom's password for the longest time was, I love my three. She has a fourth. Her Instagram account for a while was mother of three. I was just like bounced out of the equation. But the thing is, it actually never really bothered me because I loved my sisters. I never minded changing their diapers or babysitting them. Like they were my babies. So when Kelly and I found out that Jay, one of them was suffering with, with uh, depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation, both Kelly and I jumped in. We gave it everything we had. We fought that fight with her. We stayed up every single night praying and reading and studying. We drove all across the county, taking her to doctor's appointments. And unfortunately, she ended up passing away. And it is one of the hardest things I've ever faced. I mean, she was one of my closest friends. She told me that she wanted me to walk her down the aisle when she got married. And some people will tell you, I heard this, maybe it's helpful for you guys, it wasn't really helpful for me, but they would say things like, oh, well, this is gonna give you purpose. Like, this is gonna help you relate to other people. And it does that, and I'm blessed when it does that, but like, that doesn't make the suffering any better. Like, I'd give all of my understanding of, of depression and anxiety up to have my sister back. But what it did do was reveal and refine what I believed. 
it helped me realize like, yeah, I really believe this stuff. And Christ is all I have to cling to. It made clear my hope for heaven. And don't misunderstand me. It's not that God is testing for his understanding. Ultimately, what he does is he reveals our faith to ourselves. This is C.S. Lewis's point when his wife passed away. He says this, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out in order to find out their quality, he knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. Which brings us to our third and final point, which is that, that we need to look to Jesus to find hope in our suffering because only in knowing Jesus can we understand our suffering and find hope for it. The cross ultimately is the thing that validates it. And here's the thing about the cross when we look to it is that we can talk a lot about theology and apologetics and let's just put aside, although they're important, let's put aside for a minute the meaning of substitutionary atonement and what it means for imputed righteousness or what Luther called the great exchange. Put those aside for a minute because ultimately the thing that makes the cross the cross is that a father loses his son. Is that a parent watches their child die. That is the sacrifice of the cross. And the thing is, is that God could have been like, no way, not for these people, not for a group of people that will deny my glory, question my goodness and live their daily lives as though I don't even exist. I'm gonna let my only son die for them, but he does it. He lets them die for us. Why would he do that? So that we could have healing and restoration so that we could have hope that one day all of our suffering would end, so that all of the wrong things would be made right. That is the mysterious love and sacrifice that God has for us. And so looking back at verse five, it, it's Jesus's tears that sows our shouts of joy. He let his son suffer and die so that we might one day have a life without suffering. That is the hope we have when we look to the cross. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.